then when you fill out your bracket, do you fill it out? I'll say I fill it out going in order that games would be played. Do you? What order do you fill it out? You should be filling it out backwards. That's I was actually thinking that, and I've never <laughs> asked you that before. When you're talking about how important the champion is, I was thinking maybe this is what you should be spending your time on. Uh, Figure out the champion and then to see what what the rest looks like. Yeah. Get the final four right and the champion, and then you know maybe there's not much else to worry about. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Rise and Invest podcast. Today we're doing a special episode for March Madness NCAA basketball. With me today is Evan Dillon, vice president at our company. Welcome. Good to be back on round two. You're probably wondering why we're doing a March Madness special, but kind of funny story. When I first met Evan, we were he was interviewing for the position, and he was telling me about this bracket optimization model that he made, mm-hmm. and figured why not perfect time to get into it on the podcast is in the middle of the tournament so and it, i mean it was really funny because you know i think we had an initial phone interview that was 42 minutes to an hour and i think at the very end you had noticed that i put vba experience on my resume which is the code that's used within excel and you had asked like what had i what projects had i done at work using this coding language yeah. and you know i respond well i've never really used it for work but i have my own projects that I've worked on, namely this NCAA bracket optimization model. And then you were curious enough to want to see it in an in-person interview. I actually, (laughs) I I came in and we had actually talked about this multifamily model first before, you know, during my phone interview where I created this thing that has advanced data aggregation and visualization. You really, you were really interested in seeing that, but it was funny with the in-person interview, I actually ended up showing the basketball model first. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, funny. we talked about basketball for like the first, first half hour and then finally got into like the real okay. interview. It was very interesting. I mean, obviously you were interested in it. It was great to talk about and, you know, just hear more about you and what you do outside of work. That's, that was a big reason why. Plus, I mean, I've never seen anything like it and. You know, we're not, this is a podcast more so there's not any, any visuals if you're listening where, but there's really something to see where there's some formulas. This is all made in Excel. You'll get into it obviously, but just for me as the person looking at it for the first time and some of these formulas, you look at them and they're seven lines long in the little, in the Excel formula box. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know if I've seen a formula where you had already when you expanded and you see the three lines or whatever it is, and then where you scroll. <laughs> I've never seen one break the, go beyond the three or whatever, right? And I've never seen that then. And this was well beyond three. It was seven or whatever lines. I mean, it, it does take a lot of analytical power and it's a model that is comprised of, I'll say three components, one of which is kind of the foundation of the model where I really want to create a predictive model solely based on how well teams have performed during the regular season and then create probabilistic expectations for say team a to beat team b and run those probabilities for every possible matchup 
and then outlining that across the NCAA tournament where I can go team by team, round by round, and give the exact probability that a certain team will reach a certain point of the tournament. Hey, this was fun to talk about. I've never, you know, <laughs> for people listening, they've never heard of anything like this before. That what do you, what was your your goal then with the with the model though? Just to maybe back up before we get into how it works. Like, so you made it to pick games to win what? Like, what was the sort of the thought behind making the model? You know, it's definitely something that I've worked on for several years. It kind of started off as a, a silly obsession where I think I was a sophomore in college and I just built this cauldron of statistics that made no sense whatever and i think everybody's fascination with march madness is that there's all these upsets you know there's cinderellas there's excitement a lot of unknown and there's definitely a fascination with creating a perfect bracket everybody knows about warren buffett's offer to pay a million dollars or whatever it is if someone yeah. were to create the perfect bracket, I'd say the first several years, it was designed to do something like that. But what I found over the course of those years is that the bracket didn't perform to my expectations because there are certain components that I think we can get into in a bit, but I was really asking myself the wrong question at first, where I thought to win a bracket pool, I need to create the perfect bracket where in actuality, you just need to optimize your chances of winning your pool. And doing that and creating the perfect bracket are completely different things. Right. Like you could have, like, if you think maybe a high seed is going to knock out a really low seed in this one game matchup, but to optimize your bracket is probably might be better to not make that pick because then if that, that low seed keeps going, they're going to win a bunch of games or maybe the high seed is going to get knocked out in the next one mm -hmm. type of thing. That's what it was maybe doing. Or And I think, you know, in just kind of identifying patterns within the tournament overall, I talked about my newly formulated model, which I predict the probabilities of each team reaching a certain round. But let's take the first round, for example. That model, out of 32 games in the first round of the tournament, you would expect to see eight upsets, right? So that's a, that's a quarter of the games. That's a lot. But, you know, humans are designed to kind of see patterns, right? I see eight upsets in the first round. Maybe that means I should pick eight upsets in my bracket. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense intuitively. But what you're doing in that instance is you're picking eight low prob lower probability events to occur and then 24 higher probability events to occur rather than taking 32 of the higher probability events to occur. When you're doing that, you're actually lessening your chances in terms of the points that you would score by the, the teams that you actually end up picking because you're choosing a number of lower probability events to happen that dilutes your chances of winning and picking correct teams to win. And that erodes your chances of actually like winning your pool. That's that's interesting. Also, too, even just even if you didn't know there's on average eight upsets, or and how how do you know that? By the way, how would you even know that that there's there's eight upsets on average? In the um, I mean, I think you know for the the 2021 tournament, for example, just going back through the model, we have probabilities for every team. You know, say team A to beat team B, and that might be. 70% on average, let's say like a 5-12 seed matchup. 
on average, the five seed will have like a 66% chance to win. But let's add those up across five 12 seed matchups. I would expect to see 1.3 upsets okay. in, a, in a given yeah. year because I'm 33% times four is 1.3. And, you know, with that, I know that the expected number of upsets per my model was 8.1 in the first round. There were 10 oh. upsets in the round. But it, it is a still function of small sample size, but okay. that deviation isn't far off. That's that's interesting. And I, w- I would think, too, for a person just picking the bracket, just without an advanced analytical model or anything here, we they, they feel like there's more upsets than eight because that's what you're going to hear about. You know, if a mm-hmm. one beats a 16, it, they don't even talk about it, basically. They spend all their time talking about these whatever, 5-12 matchups that are tough to get through. It seems like, but even I don't even know if that's statistically right, but it feels like it's like the 12 is almost favored in that game. That's what it seems like, but I'm sure it's not the case. And, I mean, like, like I said, you would expect to see 1.3 upsets on that 5-12 seed line a year. So, you know, in any given year, you see one or two. That feels like a lot because there's only four games. For some years, it's going to be two then yeah. to average out, and then that's like half the games. That that's interesting. That's it's funny. We we'll have to ask some questions at the end. Then tips for people making brackets. That's actually what I, if you're watching, type down on my computer here because I was like, we gotta, we'll circle back at the end for tips. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's maybe that's one. Don't don't focus too much on these five twelve upsets. There's usually only one. And exactly, and I and I can get more into how the model works as well because there's different layers to it than just knowing that. Team A has better chances of beating Team B and knowing that throughout the round. Like I said, the first layer to the model is knowing those probabilities. But the second is it's not just enough to know those probabilities because it turns out the public's pretty good. And when I say public, I mean the 14 million brackets that are submitted to ESPN or or whatever website. Yeah. The public's pretty good at identifying which teams are more likely to win one beat one seed beats two seed etc makes sense right but the problem that the public has is that while they know which teams are more likely to win they're also more likely to overvalue or undervalue teams i think a, a good example is let's say 2019 duke this was a tournament it was two tournaments ago duke had probably one of the most transcendent college basketball players that we've seen in the last probably decade or two decades, Zion Williamson. Duke was a phenomenal team. They actually had the best chances of winning the finals per my model. Oh, interesting. They had 20%, right? But 20% is amazing odds. That's the best in the tournament. But the problem with picking Duke in that case is that the public was picking Duke frequently almost two times greater than what the actual odds were that they would win. The 40% of all brackets had Duke winning. Correct. Your odds are you're not going to win your pool. Correct. If you, okay. Interesting. And then on the flip side. Hold on. Actually, your model factors (laughs) that in somehow? It does. So, (laughs) and you know, another perfect example is 2019 Virginia. Same tournament. Virginia was a one seed in the tournament in 2018. They were the first one seed ever to lose to a 16 seed in the first round. Nobody touched Virginia with a 39 and a half foot pull uh, that next year, where they still had a significant probability of actually winning it overall. I think it was about 19, 18%. 
the public was only picking them 9% of the time. That significant delta is enough to warrant you picking Virginia. That's interesting. Okay. In, in your bracket pools. And, you know, I think those are very extreme examples. You know, there's not going to be quite those uh, degree of deltas between um, what the public's picking and then what actual advanced probabilities are, are saying. ESPN, they publish data on the frequency for which a team will make a certain round in the tournament. And with that data, I can integrate that into my model. But this is the data that what the public's picking. This is the not, public. Not their version of this. It's this, Correct. Here's what's been submitted to us. And in that Duke year, 20% of the models had them have been winning. 40, like yeah, 40%. Oh, right, 40. You had 20, yep. And that, okay, nice. And that's across a significant sample size. Like, I think on average, 14 million brackets get submitted to, to and ESPN then each year. How is this information obtained where it comes out in like a CSV type or Excel file or what's the... It, it's, I guess it's a CSV file, then I just integrate it into Excel. And, you know, with that data, what I then do is create random number generators and assign, you know, brackets to be made by the public based on the frequency at which they're picking these teams. Okay. And then I simulate brackets using VBA code, which That's <laughs> I hadn't been resume. using for work. Yeah. I've been using for... For this. But then why do you need to run these simulations? We, you already have the percentages, though. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't there be some way to incorporate that? The, the reason why I run these simulations and what I do is I'll simulate a tournament based on my probabilities for which a team will make a certain round or will win the championship. And for every tournament that I simulate based on my probabilities, I'll simulate a bracket pool that I'm competing against of different sizes i'm competing against oh. 10 people 25 people 50 people 100 people and with that uh i i layer the two together and then i can go look back on that data and almost create like a, a specific bracket of mine where based on those simulations i will have seen what's the probability that i will have won a bracket pool for any given size let's say the pool size is 10 people or 25 people or 50 people or 100 people, that pool size is almost the defining factor of what my picks should be. Because as your pool size increases, you do need to take on more risk and you, yeah. do, you do need to choose these upsets and go against whatever the advanced probabilities are saying. Because in those instances, you're finding misalignment in value where say a team is expect 40% chance of making the final four, the public's only taking them at a 20% chance, I should pick them. That makes sense. I just started smiling because I mean, this is almost <laughs> going to be, do you get, do you get nervous when you have to enter a pool? Cause now there's going to be pressure on you at this point, <laughs> I would think where, you know, what, you know, what do you, well, how do you, how do you feel about that? I actually just I was thinking about that. You were in the chair, and I was like, actually, this is because if you compete against my bracket, there's not any pressure on me. You know, I only need a game. I don't know if you thought about that, but I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's pressure. I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends who obviously know about this tool and they, they want to know how to use it and they want to use it for their own pools. And what really sets apart is that it's properly hedged by pool size. And, um, you know, the, the most important decision that goes within 
making a bracket is choosing who your champion is going to be because it's the most points it's the it's the largest decision and that's where the misalignment and value can come into a huge play and i guess diversifying and who your winner is yeah. across let's say i enter a pool size of 10 people 25 people 100 people who your champion is will ultimately be the deciding factor. Instances where, say, I'm in a pool size of 10 people, I can pretty much take all the favorites in a bracket and take the number one overall seed. And conventional wisdom would say, I'm in a bracket pool of 10 people. I have a 10% chance. One divided by 10 is 10% chance. But actually doing those picks and just picking favorites, you can actually 3x your chances of winning the pool. I increase my odds to be 30% instead of 10%. And just because a lot of people are picking upsets and- Because there's, in, in, in a bracket pool of 10 people, there's much choice variance where you get people picking a lot of upsets in earlier rounds. And like I said before, where they're actually decreasing their odds of winning by identifying this pattern, there should be eight upsets. I'm gonna. Right. almost quote like have a quota of eight upsets in my first round and then they're eroding their chances to win because these upsets that never uh, actually happened are continuing to go through their model and the, their team isn't even the, in the tournament anymore yeah exactly so okay if you were in a 10-person bracket with no 10-person pool you would without any other info if you were going to give someone advice you'd be like just pick all the favorites correct interesting <laughs> wow okay just in every game just whatever the numbers are pick the favorites okay and you'll, you'll optimize your chances of winning. But as your pool size increases, that's where you need to begin to be more contrarian. Let's say last season's tournament, 2021, Gonzaga had about a 31% chance of winning it overall, like huge. The public was picking them at a frequency of like 34%. Let's say I'm in a pool size, 10 people. I can expect maybe three people to have picked Gonzaga because 30 4% times 10 is, is three, but because people are fascinated with picking upsets in earlier rounds, I just increased my odds of winning because I didn't, right. I didn't flirt with all these upsets and, you know, do these right. certain things. But yeah. then as the pool size increases, let's say I'm in a pool of with a hundred people. Now I can expect 34% yeah. of people to have picked Gonzaga and then as your pool size increases, there's more, it's more likely that someone will have gotten lucky with a certain upset and, you know, end up winning. That's where the odds start to flip, where I really need to look to the misalignment and value between what the public is picking and what my model says. For something like, you know, picking a Baylor who actually ended up winning it overall, they had a higher probability of winning than the frequency at which the public was picking. Just doing that and being in a larger pool where there's a much smaller number of people actually picking that team, that improves my yeah. odds. And by changing who my champion is and becoming more contrarian as the pool size gets larger, I can maintain that 3X to 5X on my odds where I'm in a pool size of 100 people. Conventional wisdom would say, I should be expecting a 1% chance to win because I'm one of a hundred, but you can actually increase that to 5%. Okay, no, I understand. <laughs> and I think, cause I, I, I like hearing how the model works and then I really like these tips. So then 
but let's visualize the model. The you get the your your model pulls in something to make its own predictions, but then you use the ESPN data to then have simulated brackets you're competing against, right? Correct. Okay. And the the part on the number generator, to me, what I didn't understand in that is why why wouldn't you just say, okay, I'm competing against a thousand brackets. ESPN said their percentage was 14. Then I just, you know, a thousand times 14, that's how many brackets pick that team. Like what's, why do you do the number generator? Because you don't know which brackets picked it, which brackets picked that team those 14% of the time. So now you need to make these hypothetical ones. It's, it's easier to, and I, I create a large sample size of simulations. I was actually running it last night and I increased the simulation size to a hundred thousand bracket entries. When I do that, I can, you know, layer, let's say my specific bracket picks to all these simulations. And I can see exactly how that bracket that I picked myself would have performed relative to all these simulations. And I, I can, I can use the, the, the frequency at which the, the public is picking, you know, certain teams to go far into the tournament. And I do use that data to create separate metrics that I use to one account for expected points and then sort of like risk adjusted point values for picking those teams. So that it's, it's a combination of both where I'm just using the raw data at which the public is picking these teams to go to a certain point. And then also using the data from the simulations to help with my bracket selections. Got it. Then, okay, you have, and we had, I jumped in with all those tips questions. Then you have the, the simulations ran, and then what do you do with it next in the model? Next, right. Let's say I run 100,000 simulations on bracket pool entries, people I'll be competing against. What I'll do with that, let's say it's a bracket, si bracket pool size of 100 people. I have 100,000 simulations of bracket pool entries. Uh, I can compare that to, I would, I would expect a thousand tournament results to happen for each of those hundred pool entries. Yeah. Right. And then I create my own bracket and then look back to all those simulations of this tournament occurred. There were a hundred bracket submissions. This, this tournament occurred. There were a hundred bracket simulations. This tournament occurred. There were a hundred bracket simulations. I create my own bracket and see exactly how I performed against all those uh, different scenarios. Then I can see the exact probability of which my selected bracket will win. Got it. No, that makes, that makes sense. But then just, let's just run through the whole model then. Cause then from there, what do you, what do you do? That's it's complete. Now you're picking your bracket or what's the, then it's complete. But at some point I'll just jump in. I thought you were pulling in not just the ESPN probabilities, but some sort of other stats analytics on the actual teams and like to, to make your bracket that you're going to then enter into this thing with the simulations there's more to it than that we didn't just pick them at random right you know there is that foundation of the probabilities of which a team will beat a certain team that's completely based on the results of the regular season so i mean that's data across there's 360 division one basketball teams roughly they pay play 30 games in a season, roughly. That's about 10,000 game logs. From there, you can build a pretty simple, but very powerful model based on that data. And it's substantial data. It's 10,000 game logs. I have a significant sample size for every team paying, playing plus or minus 30 games. 
and what you're looking for in that model is I want to know the uh, efficiency of which my team plays basketball. So that just means I'm going to strip out people like to use sort of, uh, you know, other statistics like points per game or rebounds per game or stuff like that. But really what you want to do is strip out the number of possessions that occur in a game, the number of possessions, and then you measure how much, how many points did a team score and how many points did a, a team get up. And I'll measure the efficiency, your offensive and defensive efficiencies based on the number of possessions that occurred. And I'm going to average that efficiency over the course of the regular season, then make adjustments for the quality of opponent that I'm playing. Because, you know, the Division One landscape, you can have the Dukes and Kentuckys of the world, and then you can also have, you know, the Pepperdines and the, the Norfolk states of the world, right. which have significantly less talent and resources available to them. With, the, with that data and with the efficiency statistics, I can build what's called a Pythagorean win expectation, where essentially it's a, it's a pretty relatively short model that's been used across all sports, baseball, football, nice. basketball, whatever, and then assign the amount of points that I would expect to score against any given team, and then assign a probability that I will beat that team. Interesting. So that's the real foundation <clears throat> yeah, of the model. Yeah, in the big takeaway is it's really factored in the number of possessions because then then they go up maybe using this theorem you're figuring out how okay this team they they have a lot of possessions against their defense and then they factor that in against the team at however much they score per possession is a big driver that's interesting yeah i would not i've personally never heard that before but i've not and there and there's there's a, a big discrepancy between the say the the slowest paced teams and then the fastest paced teams where yeah. on average the NCAA probably 70 possessions per game the slower teams will probably clo be closer to 60 possessions in a game and then the faster teams will be mid high 70s right so that makes a substantial difference when i'm measuring statistics like points per game which you need that possession data to understand what is the rate that i'm actually scoring Per possession and what's my efficiency and then too it's interesting i mean i can tell why it's important to factor that in if you you're in whatever conference where there's a lot of high possession games and then you go up against i went to uw madison they don't hmm. they don't pay, play as fast as some teams you go up against wisconsin you have less possessions hmm. just compared to whatever some of these teams would have gone against and i can see where that'll make a big difference hmm. that's i mean they UW madison they hold teams to low numbers but also <laughs> it's part of it's that it's yeah. like obvious watching the game where it's not just that the defense is good. It's just not as much. It's not like the ACC games where just basically just running down the court the whole time. It feels yeah, like. it's like so. a track meet. Download our 100-plus page passive investing guidebook today at riseinvest.com slash downloads. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. Now back to the show. Exactly. <laughs> so nice. That. That makes that makes sense. I remember you were pulling in other stuff, but then that's really just to pick your initial bracket. That then you're running through this. Computer. Yeah, then I'm running through the simulations. But you know, like I said, just having those probabilities isn't necessarily enough because if I ask someone, "What's the probability that Team A will make it to the finals?" and 
they might know, hey, Gonzaga or Duke or whatever team, they're really good. I'm going to say 25%. Well, in 2019, you would have been 5% off, right. you know, what I had predicted for Duke, which was 20%. But the public can be significantly overvaluing teams, like I, I had said. You need that. That's interesting. That paired with it. And I know you had told me you're on like version seven of this or what was the number? <laughs> like every year you make updates. Yeah. You're saying. This would be version seven and it's gone through quite the evolution from the time I was just a sophomore in college where I was pulling these, these, you know, popular statistics like points per game and the, the rate at which someone's shooting three pointers and how good they are, how well you are rebounding, how many wins against top 25 opponents do you have things like that but it really held no statistical significance yeah. over the years i've significantly refined it where i told you before i was looking for or trying to solve the wrong question which is i want to create a perfect bracket which was what i initially set out to and then there was all of a sudden the the eureka moment where i figured out those are the people that I need to be competing against. Yeah. Those people that are trying to pick the perfect bracket where they're picking all the correct upsets but ruining their their chances to 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 actually win. You know, I one thing that I realize is that it's easy to create a terrible bracket. It still remains hard to create a good one, but it is beyond easy to create a terrible one. <laughs> what are what are some ways people create terrible ones? Picking too many upsets. I think Something that people do is that obviously there's a lot of fascination around that first round. I want to get my upsets right. I want to pick, I got to have my Cinderella because there's always a Cinderella. I want to have a contrarian final four pick. And then by the time the sweet 16 or the final four runs around, like I don't really care who my champion is. I might just pick right. whoever right. I'll pick the favorite. Right. But you know, when you're doing that and let's say you entered a pool of, hundred people, you pick all these low probability events, the the earlier rounds, then you pick the same champion that everyone else yeah. picked. You're bound to not perform well in that bracket pool. It makes sense. Then when you fill out your bracket, do you fill it out? I'll say I fill it out going in order the games would be played. Do you what order do you fill it out? You should be filling it out backwards. That's I was actually thinking that and I've never <laughs> asked you that before. When you're talking about how important the champion is, I was thinking Maybe that's what you should be spending your time on. Figure out the champion and then to see what, what the rest looks like. Yeah. Get the final four right and the champion. And then maybe there's not much else to worry about. That and most of the stuff I've entered has been like a 10-person. Well, maybe I'll just pick all the favorites from now on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make it easy on myself. And, uh, you know, the you want to pick your champion first, right? And you want to make sure that it's properly placed for the size of the pool that you're picking. but Depending on the pool size, you do need to make other contrarian picks. You know, I think a good example last year where I had entered pool sizes of 25, 50, 100 people, thereabouts. Illinois was a very popular pick to not only win it all, but just move, go far into the tournament, yeah. the final four run. I think my model had predicted like a 37% chance that they make the final four, which is substantial. But the public was picking them at a 52% rate. Interesting. But even further, we live in I Chicago. This, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I was at another company, you know, at this time last year. There's a, a lot of Illini alumni in uh, my office. And I had a hunch that 
I'm going to see a, a lot of Illini picks to win it all. And my bracket pool is going to be saturated with this team, either making the final four or just being the champion. But the, in that region was also Houston, which had a lower probability of making the final four. They had a 28% chance relative to a 38% chance, which Illinois had. But the public was picking them less frequently. And I know I had the geography advantage yeah. here that I picked Houston to go to the final four. And it's a lower probability event to happen, but the risk adjusted value of making that pick is one that can set your bracket apart now and ultimately help you win your bracket. That's interesting. I was actually, that's why I started smiling when you were talking about living, living in Chicago. Cause I was like, oh, this model might need some, you know, geographic toggles if you live in California, we need to adjust the weighting for all the Cali teams or something. Or that's funny. I don't, you know, well, nice. That's, that's great. Then that's, is that, that's kind of how everything on how the model works or there's more there or what, what else we got? I mean, that's really how the model works. You know, I think there's plenty of like takeaways that I've just learned through this process. And I think a lot of that is when you're in the process of building your bracket, everybody has to bounce their ideas off one another and say, I'm picking this team. This is my Cinderella. I'm picking this three seed to make the championship. I'm picking this team to win it overall. But when you look to the reasoning behind those picks, it's extremely specific. I'm pinpointing one criteria for why team A should be team B. And I think a good case study of this to, to help people understand in 2012, this is a long time ago, Jay Billis, who was like one of the big talking heads for college basketball, yeah. he's great. He had predicted 13 seed Ohio would beat four seed Michigan. And I remember this well because I'm a Michigan fan. I'm a yeah. Michigan grad. He picked 13 seed Ohio to beat four seed Michigan in the first round. And the reason, his reasoning behind that was that Michigan likes to shoot threes at a greater rate than average, and their offensive performance is very reliant on three-pointers. Well, Ohio has a great three-point defense to combat against them. Yeah. That was his reasoning behind an yeah, upset occurring. He's picking a very specific thing that occurs in a matchup. Bad matchup for Michigan. I'm going to choose an upset. Michigan gets upset by Ohio. They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I remember. But if you actually look back to the game log data, Michigan shot about average in terms of like they shot 33% from three-pointer on the year. They shot about 33% in that game. That actually wasn't really, you know, the big ticket item that swung the game. It's Michigan's defense got cooked and they gave up 60% from two-pointers. They, they lost at the rim. That's why they lost. Wow. Going back to what Jay Bills has said, he, and this could be applied to anyone just making their picks where, hey, I made a decision based on a matchup. I actually ended up being right, but the statistics don't actually back that up. And it ended up being for a different reason even. Yeah. Yes. But then if now, and then a lot of brackets, I, I can fill in the blanks. I mean, had Ohio picked and interesting. And like, I mean, What's important about that is that you can't really make a decision on the outcome of a game or really, I mean, this can be applied to anything 
but I shouldn't be making a decision on something based on one variable, right? right? There's actually four factors that determine a hundred percent of the variance in the outcome of a basketball game. It's the rate at which you make your baskets or your field goal percentage, the rate at which you turn over the ball, the rate at which you rebound and the rate at which you go to the free throw line and make free throws. And all that is baked into that points per possession statistic that we had talked about. But let's say I were to make a prediction on a game by this team, you know, they're going to be a great at defending the three. I want to build a model that's based on this one component. Well, if you were to say create like a linear regression or whatever model to predict the outcome, because I think Michigan's going to shoot poorly from three against Ohio. There's little correlation. There's no correlation between any statistics that you put into this model to predict how Michigan yeah. is going to perform from three. And that's just as important of a thing to identify and know, not only in building a bracket, but just like decision-making in general, where I'm overweighting this one statistic or one observation much that it's skewing the the actual probability for an event to actually happen and there's no statistical significance between what i expect to happen and the 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 actual correlation between this statistic yeah. against these others because jay billis makes his pick based on something that actually when you, if you run the numbers won't have any impact on the outcome or no statistical significant one correct Interesting. And yeah. then that, I don't remember that game. That was against Ohio. Not was against Ohio. Not Ohio State. It's not Ohio State. But this, that's still, that's, <laughs> that's got to be tougher you and everybody in Michigan to take then or you lose to, lose to Ohio, not even the full <laughs> Ohio State. So, Luckily, it's 10 years ago. I'm over. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Okay, then let's do some tips for people making their brackets. I think that was for, for me, again, because I'm in a lot of, or not a lot, but I would be in a small bracket basically for like the company I would be at, I would not entering a ton of brackets or with like friends, let's say like a small group. Then, I mean, the tip for me is just pick all the favorites, but don't announce that's what you do. People will be annoyed. <laughs> and when you say, and then where would, where would you find out like when the seeds are the same number and they go up against each other, like a four seed playing a four seed, where would you even find out which one would be favored out of those two then? It's based on the, uh, the success that a certain team had during the regular season. That's all baked into a predictive ranking of, I should expect to score this many points against this team. This point, this team, team B should be expected to score this many points against team A. I put that in the model and let's say the predicted margin is 65 to 60. Well, I can put that in a model and then I can assign to a, a probability based on that predicted outcome. Okay, nice. Well, I, for that, I was actually asking for, for me. That's what you would do, right? That's <laughs> yeah. what you would run the numbers. But for me, I, if I'm just going, I'm in an eight-person pool, I'm going to take your advice. I'm just going to pick all the favorites. But now once we get into where they're going to run up against the same seed, how do I... Where, where do I go to see like the just a, a order of the, the seating? There's like, cause it'd be one through 64, 65. Where would I find that? Not, not running a model, just like <laughs> online. Is that somewhere on ESPN's yeah. got a one through 65 ranking or what's, where do I go? You know, I'm not the only one who's thought of creating a model like this. There's a myriad of people that have created statistical model, 
models based on college basketball. For example, you can find a lot online. One of which is in kind of the crown jewel is KenPom.com, which is why don't you just spell that just to make sure KenPom.com. It's A E N P O M dot com. And that's I guess a clipped version of the the person's name who created who's Ken Pomeroy. Nice. I think he's like a meteorologist professor at the University of Utah or Wyoming. But he created this model and there's all different kinds of models that are similar to that one that are also available to the public. One of which is barttorvik.com, who's a UW Madison grad as well. ESPN BPI, which is Basketball Power Index, where you can see team rankings and the expected probability that team A will beat team B. There's public information out there for anyone to do this on their own. Got it. And that's the best place to go, not find some list of like one through 65 ranking. Actually, you find somewhere you can find the matchup at that point. If you got a four playing a four, correct. Like go look it up actually at that point. Correct. All right. <laughs> that's not, that's now that's nice because that, but you don't, on those websites, you would just type in the teams playing each other or how would you, what, what does the information look like? The information looks like each team is, is ranked in order of how good they are or how successful they've been during the regular season. And, and it's updated through the tournament. It's laid out giving the offensive and defensive efficiencies that you would expect a certain team to have against the average team in the NCAA. The teams towards the top, obviously, they're going to have a better probability of beating your average team. And the teams ahead of one another, they're going to have the higher probability of beating that team. And it looks like, you know, it's projected in that offensive and defensive efficiency numbers. And that's usually how it's, it's projected. Okay, interesting. And I guess I realized if you just pick all the favorites, it's going to just be all once against each other. And then at that <laughs> point, would you just, you're picking the games or you would go, let me go to the end of the year ranking seat, so just pick it in whoever was number one and number two, pick them. And to back up, I mean, not necessarily are the one seeds going to always be better than, let's say the, the two seeds. I'm more meant if you're in like a five person pool. Your advice was just pick pick them just basically in order. Mm -hmm. But then I'm saying, but you end up with a final four of all ones. Now what? Because now you we were just picking whatever number is slower, <laughs> move it forward, right? Now now you got a you got four ones. What do I do? That's yeah. what I was kind of saying for anyone in like a, you're doing a pool with your family or something. Like might not just do that. But how do you pick the ones? And so that that would be going to those yeah. those websites or any type of source where. They actually provide the rankings for you. So they can say this one seed is actually better than this other one seed. And at that point, you're picking differently, but this in the last three games. Correct. Yeah, nice. Okay. Well, let's say you're not just in a small bracket like that. What 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 tips do you have for people? Biggest tips are one: try to create your bracket backwards. Your most important decisions are going to be who the champion is, who the championship game consists of, final four, things like that. Don't fixate your time on predicting who the the right upsets are going to be because like i said if you're saying i need to pick 10 upsets while well, you're picking 10 lower probability events to happen against 22 higher probability events yeah. that happen don't do that that'll dilute the score that you'll get and another tip is know your pool we talked about like the the instance where i know i'm going to be competing against a lot of people who are picking illinois to go far into the tournament or win the tournament that's that's a huge component into like just knowing who you're competing against and knowing where the contrarian 
kind of lies. Where is there a misalignment in value based on the frequency at which people are picking a team relative to the actual probability that one team will beat another team? That's a good that's a good tip. I've been doing that just on my in my head basically. <laughs> yeah. I'm always in these pools where it's either Illinois or UW Madison grad skewed. And then I just I'm playing to like win personally and I'm not <laughs> taking those teams far ever in my bracket for that reason. Like it's you know, uh, you pick these teams going far and you know, you look around and you know, all your coworkers did too. You know, and the, the years are really good. What else comes to mind is like different tips? You know, I think don't try to overthink these things because, you know, like I said, four factors explain 100% of the variance that occurs in the basketball game. Saying that this team has player X or this team is really good around the rim or they rebound well, that's being baked into your decision-making doesn't hold a lot of statistical value. And, you know, you need to take calculated risk when it's measured and when it's necessary based on your pool size. Don't dilute your bracket with needless upsets. Great. The four, the four things that dictate the outcome. I wanted to say those again. The four things that dictate the outcome is your field goal percentage, the rate at which you just make baskets. Turnover rate, which is the frequency at which you just turn over the ball, someone steals it, you make a bad pass, you throw it out of bounds, you travel. The rate at which you rebound, which just going up, grabbing a missed shot, collecting it, and then either on defense or offense, and then free throw rate. The rate at which you get to the, the free throw line, you draw fouls, you make shots at the free throw line. Those are the four, and there's much random variance each game between those four factors that you really need to look back to the overall component, which is the point per possession metric. Because more often than not, a team is going to fall around the, the point per possession that they're expected to get, but there'll be much random variance in the other four statistics that that's something that you need to take into account because there's no statistical value in like trying to project one of those four values, but the overall component of points per possession, which consists of all four of those things, that can be predicted with accuracy. Interesting. And I mean, those four, that encompasses a lot. This is you're going through, I'm thinking like, what would someone be maybe making a choice on that then the only thing that came to my head really was like three pointers, but that's kind of, that's already in field goal percentage kind of, that's interesting. Or, but or they're making their picks based on just like a player being on the team or something. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, that's obviously going to matter in those stats, but not maybe more or less than you would think. That's interesting. And that's, and that's accounted for a regular season of plus or minus 30 games where they've scored this many points per possession with this player on the team. That's what they're expected to score moving forward. Interesting. Do you, Okay, cool. Do you, if you have more tips, keep them coming. Otherwise, if you, if that's, that's a lot already. You know, I'd, I'd say, I mean, that's, that's about, about it. Okay, nice. I think for one thing I was just thinking for you, your model, it's been like initially you weren't, I would imagine the simulation piece that came in a later version. Correct. I mean, I'll just guess, but if, if that's <laughs> fine, if you're 20 and making this in Excel already somehow, when I, I don't know, was trying to figure out how to use it, this is. For any any purpose, summing up a couple numbers or something, <laughs> probably when I was twenty, because I don't nice. I think then that makes sense. Where the first one you were picking, what will be the best teams in these matchups or something, the best bracket, but then is not factoring in who you're 
competing against. That makes sense. That got added. Mm-hmm. It's crazy you could make that though, especially in and then also make it in Excel where and like I, I think Excel doesn't get enough credit for how powerful and how dynamic of a tool it is, because this is actual code that I'm writing. It's not I'm writing in Cell B five simulate something or calculate yeah, yeah. this. It's literally probably twenty lines of code where my model is scattered with random number generators where essentially it signs a value between zero and one, like a percentage. It's evenly, I have those layered out for 63 possible games because that's how many games there are in the tournament. And what people don't realize is that in solving the enigma that's an NCAA bracket is you're actually solving for a very complex math problem where maybe I have a good idea of like team A should have this probability of beating team B, but compound that over 63 games and all these different outcomes, I can't have any sort of means of telling you just doing the math in my head, team A, team B, team C, team D, all these probabilities for every single round, for every single team, for every single outcome. Right. That's interesting. Now, have you thought about where you could tweak this model? Do you do the thing where you can pick the games based on the data that's being pulled in? And then instead of running against simulations, this is just for picking individual games now, like regular season or just, I guess, for the tournament. I mean, now betting seems to be legal everywhere, I guess, <laughs> where you could do this and you could pick the game, but then also somehow factor in what the odds are. Or I don't, I don't bet really whatever yeah. the term is for the, this is funny, I don't know on the fly, but the adjust like the point spread or whatever, yeah. where, where you, you should think about making that as the next thing. Then yeah. You- well, here's the thing is that, Vegas, you know, for one, they have some of the best statistical models. And if you actually look at, you know, the point spreads projected from Vegas compared to these other statistical models, they're basically right in line with each other almost every single time. And with, with Vegas is I have to put down, let's say the spread on a game is seven points. Team A's projected to beat team B by seven points. Well, you have to put down 110 bucks on that point spread to win a hundred bucks. Yeah. So, and you know, the, the difference between that point spread occurring or not is it's 50, 50, right? But you're already paying like down 110 bucks to win a hundred. It's less than a 50% payoff. Right. So, I mean, th- that's kind of the thing when like looking to, to, to Vegas. So, but, but you, you can win some money doing that and it's a very necessary tool to do so. But the thing that makes the model cool is that with just entering a bracket pool, you're not actually competing against Vegas who's creating these lines super efficiently. They're going to win the money no matter what you're competing with people who don't watch college basketball, who just pick a bunch of upsets, who pick, you know, Cinderella's randomly, who pick the favorite at the end. There's much more misalignment in value than, say, competing against a, a Vegas. That's what makes the this model lucrative, where I said, like, conventional wisdom would say, I'm in a pool of 10 people, I have a 10% chance, or I'm in a pool of 100 people, I have a 1% chance. We can multiply those odds by three times, five times, so it's a 3x to a 5x, which 
that's what we aim yeah. for on a 10 year hold in real estate. It's that, a pretty quick yeah. return. The nice, I think that just curious, cause I, I know, and someday you couldn't explain to me that the minus 110 or whatever this, where it's hard when you don't bet on that, when you see it to be like, what is this thing again? <laughs> where, you know, where, cause that's, I'm not surprised. And when that's funny, when I go to Vegas, I don't, people would be surprised to know I don't really gamble. Like I, one time for work and then having some friends came in, I was in Vegas for 10 days in a row, which people are also surprised I <laughs> survived that, but it was just rotated. Like I was there for work, had some friends come ahead of time. And then after anyways, it was, it, I was younger too. Maybe I, who knows if I could survive in my thirties, but it was anyways, I didn't gamble at all the entire time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You go there, this, we're in a billion dollar casino. Like they don't, this is not, people aren't in here winning tons of money. That's not how this business could yeah. work. Like they're, you're going to, and then also to some of these places, they're, they didn't have like a gaming floor. The room rates would be like a thousand a night and they charged 250, 300. That's how the, you know, win and encore usually function. And Steve Wynn even said that he's like, without the gaming floor, this would be a $700 a night hotel. That's what he pitched when they got the one in Boston approved. And so the funny thing is that I'm not really a betting person either. I'm, very risk averse and in, in the instances that i have bet on a point spread and lose that was dumb yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. i know it's going to be efficiently priced by vegas i know the odds are against me and in the long run i'm probably going to lose money but you know th that misalignment in value still exists in just doing an ncaa bracket pool finding that is it's been fun to to dig into that makes a lot of sense Nice. Has this helped in any way with like with real estate or with work? Some of these takeaways or things you might have learned or And I think it kind of goes back to what I talked about in Jay Billis predicting that Michigan's gonna lose to Ohio because of three point def defense or something. And I find that a lot of people are making decisions based off of say one statistic or their observation. They don't have a model per se, but they're creating a model in their head, which I know this, I have this observation. I have this statistic that's going to formulate my opinion. That's going to formulate my decision-making. But when you draw on, let's say, let's say we're trying to predict rent growth. And I assume if you asked 10 people, what's the most statistically significant variable in predicting future rent growth? I'm sure you get tons of answers. I, I don't know like what people say or, or what the frequency would be, but I'm sure you get tons of people saying it's population growth or it's, it's a supply and demand imbalance, income growth, job growth, everything. They might weigh one statistic far greater than the others. And you know, one thing that's also apparent is that people love to hang on numbers that are just plugs for a model but no, don't necessarily reflect reality or what has happened. I think rent growth is an area where people like to just plug in 3% rent growth year over year, because that's historically on average what rent growth has been for the entire US market for however long. And then I'm going to anchor myself to that 3% and make my decision whether or not to deviate from that number because of one of those things that we talked about where it's population growth or job growth, or this is just a slam dunk location. Right. But you know, when you're doing that, you're actually deviating much farther than what the average should be. And you're increasing the error right. in your projections because 
just like how in basketball, there's four factors that explain 100% of the variance in how many points you score in a game. In real estate, there are significantly more factors. There's significantly, significantly more uncertainty, population growth, job growth, income growth, location, supply and demand imbalance, government issues, macroeconomic stuff, interest rates, everything yep. goes into this kettle of what's it's an unknown variable but you know in the same way that in a basketball statistical model we don't take those i guess we'll say uh, toppings of the pizza and saying we're going to predict this to happen because of population growth or this statistic in particular just take the overall value which is points per possession and in this case for real estate it's historic rent growth that's that full value that you've been observing over time, call it one, two, three, four, five, ten years. That's the number that should be going into your model. And then you should devi be deviating from that number based on those statistics that you observe, not the other way around. No, that makes sense. And then out of the, it's interesting. I had a, a, a reporter contact me and basically this story was like for Chicago, the it's going to be, it's a better market than let's say like uh, for apartments than like in the South uh, mm -hmm. of the country. The whole premise is Chicago cap rates are higher than in the South. Yep. And obviously if you're in this, you go, wow, there's, you know, 900, a thousand other like factors maybe, but some are not as important, but you could just, just talking to him, it's going, well, fine. That's the one variable, but what about rent growth, property tax growth? employment income like there's many yep. even just when you think of the deal like the cap rate that's just one thing what if the rents are growing faster there and yep. your expenses barely move yep your low cap rate is going to turn into a higher cap rate pretty fast and what if you're in your high cap rate is high because buyers in that market are pricing in rents not moving and costs going up your cap rate you know it could end up going down over time if you buy mm -hmm. a real poor market that was that just popped in my head because i just had that conversation basically because the whole premise for the articles on one variable and I, I think that's you hit the nail on the head where when i look at real estate returns i really think of it in three buckets where your return it consists of three things which is yield or your cap rate growth and risk and i think people they can build a pro forma. They understand what the rents are today. They can understand like what are expenses today and build a pro forma based on that. I expect this property to generate this in NOI. People have their cap rates down. And we know that because we talk to people, it doesn't deviate far from yep. what we're saying. And, you know, I think also people have a good understanding for what risk is. If I'm developing something, I should expect this premium on my yield or I'm doing this in a fringier location, but I expect more premium to my yield. But the, the component to, to returns that we constantly see undervalued is growth because people want to be anchored to this 3%. But when you're doing that, you're not actually, you're sending a model through a one size fits all approach where you're treating every single market similarly where that's not what we observe in reality is markets in Southern areas or the Sunbelt, they're growing at much faster rates than say a Chicago. I can build a model that just has 3% in our Phoenix model, or it has 3% growth in our Chicago model, but you're not 
assigning the actual differences right. that are actually occurring in both markets. And that's a significant component that's lost when you're doing that. You're not actually, and when you do that, you're not actually building a model that's predictive. Right. And it's missing a significantly predictive component, which is growth and a differentiator. And when you say Phoenix is a market that's been averaging over 5% growth over the last 15 years, and I enter in 3% in that first year, all of a sudden I'm much farther deviated from the average expectation for what that market should be and what performance should be in that market. And then that'll bear out while you own the property. I mean, the last five years or I think looking back, if it was in Chicago, I mean, you had 3% in your spreadsheet, your real growth, that was probably right next to zero per year. Meanwhile, in Phoenix, you your rents went up more than 50% in that time period, mm. kind of over by over 50 by a lot, but I'm just going to use a round number. But that, just think how wrong your analysis would have been going, hey, I guess I'll just buy this Chicago deal. The cap rate's a little higher and you grow both at 3%. You don't see the, you're not factoring in the outperformance, uh, outperformance at these places where everybody's moving and the incomes are exploding. And I think, you know, it's been a really big value add for us having that data in place. But even in talking with investors, other investors, no one really underwrites that higher rent growth, or or at least they don't like to. And that's, that's something that's missing. And I think there's a, like I saw a tweet this week or another week where someone said that real estate, it's really returns are really driven by buying it right and directly adding value through like a renovation or a lease up or whatever it is. But people don't account in the, the, the legwork that we've done on our data side and our data science team, predicting rental rate growth for basically every zip code in the nation and identifying where the growth is. That's, you know, significant thing that we have in our pocket that isn't accounted for by most investors or at least a significant portion of them because like i said they want to be anchored to three percent or four percent and then deviate from that number based on certain criteria that they see being correlated to overall rent growth numbers when in fact it's not and if you built a model to predict rent growth just solely on population growth or one of those other statistics it would be not very powerful well, great. Let's let's just wrap it there. I mean, this is this is fun. I'm glad I'm glad you came on. Thanks for being on, Evan. Thank you. Fun. Good luck, everybody, with your brackets, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.